Thank you, Dave. Children are dismissed for Children's Church, and please open your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 3. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin. Titus chapter 3. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, as we turn to your word, Lord, we want to see you and what you have for us. We want to be changed. We want the eyes of our understanding to be opened. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts of flesh. Speak light and life where there is darkness and death. And Build up your people. Cleanse your bride. Lord, do that now in our time here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are drawing near to our study of the book of Titus. Um, this week, we'll close out sort of the formal argument of the book. Next week, we'll deal with Paul's final instructions and sort of do a book overview. And as always, I want to spend a moment or two setting the context of where we're coming from so we can understand where Paul is going. If you remember, Paul left Titus in Crete to attend to, to serve, to build up the local churches that were there that are still in their infant state. Paul had gone through with his band of church planters and had left young Titus behind and he wanted Titus to act in his stead. And we get that from chapter 1, verse 5, that he, he left him there so that he could set in order the things that were lacking, the things that remained. First of which, there was no leadership in the church. There were no elders. And so that's Titus's first concern. And the reason for elders, primarily at least for Titus, is their need for these godly, seasoned men who know the word to be able to combat error. In fact, this issue of error bookends the, the section, the major section of the book. Um, the second half of chapter one is devoted to that, and we're going to, as we move through our text today, enter into that as well. So on each end of the, of the book, there's this word about false teaching and error, and in the middle, chapters two, verse one through three, eight, is a section on gospel living, which is the other main emphasis Paul has given Titus to instruct the Christians at Crete how to live. We saw that in chapter 2 as he went case by case, example by example, class by class. And in that instance, and then in last week's text, both times it's not a set of simple rules. It's not just do this, do that, but there's a gospel foundation. There's a gospel root that Paul assumes is necessary to bear that type of good fruit. So if you look up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is where Paul gives the instruction of how Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves are to conduct themselves. But it's not simply law and legalism. It's supposed to flow out of verse 11 of chapter 2, the four there connecting it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Paul is saying because Jesus died, remember this, because he died not only to justify you, not only for your forgiveness, not only so that you could avoid hell, 
but that he also died to cleanse you. Jesus died on the cross so that we could become holy in this life progressively, or what is sometimes referred to as sanctification. Because of that, get busy getting sanctified is basically the reasoning. And then in chapter 3, he goes from specific cases, we saw this last week, to general instructions. And primarily, we're looking at the Christian's relationship to the world. And so in chapter 3, remind them, which is the Christians, the church, us as well, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so his instructions towards the world in general, he breaks into two categories, towards rulers and authorities, governments, civil magistrates, and the command there is simple and hard, to, to submit yourself to them and to obey them. And we talked last week about how submitting is that inward attitude of willingly placing yourself under another's authority, not to kick against it, not to buck against the goads, but to accept that. And the obedience is, is the actions that flow out of that. And then broadening the scope to our unbelieving neighbor, he says to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That is how we are to conduct ourselves to our neighbor and to the world. But again, he doesn't just leave us there with those instructions. He moves on to gospel truths to, to, to found that, to build upon and to sustain those instructions. And he starts by reminding us of what we were formerly like. So the temptation when you look at your unbelieving neighbor, the temptation when you look at your government official that is displeasing to you, is to say that that person's an idiot, or that person's um, corrupt, or that person's a liar, or that person's a cheat. And Paul doesn't deny that that may be the case. Rulers and authorities have always been subject to those weaknesses. It's nothing new. Your unbelieving neighbor has always been possibly a jerk. But Paul's argument is, so are you. And so you can sort of apply that list. He says, we were once, there in verse 3, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. And so he's completely entertaining the possibility that your government, your rulers, your authorities are foolish, ignorant, led astray. He just says, so are you. Let's think about your neighbor. So are you. And we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so what he's doing there to motivate us to obey is reminding us of our former condition, reminding us that if we are any different now, it's not because of something we did. It's not because we are better than them. When we see someone in error, when we see someone described in verse 3, what we should think is, praise God, there but his grace go I. And then... In verse 4 to 7, he, he recites a Christian hymn, um, what is one of the trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles. That, that phrase, trustworthy saying, that you see starting verse 8, appears five times in the pastoral epistles, and as best as we can figure out, these are Christian doctrinal sayings or hymns. They oftentimes have poetic meter or rhythm to them. And so this is a truism that the early Christian community, before the New Testament was finished being written, were putting together to train and teach each other. And it goes like this, verse 4. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What we see in this, this hymn is every member of the Trinity at work in our salvation. We, we saw this last week, that the, the plan, the loving kindness of God our Savior refers to the Father by a simple process of elimination. If you, if you read here, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out. So this person, he poured out the Holy Spirit, so he is not the Holy Spirit, And then we see he did this through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he is not Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the Father is the the one who planned our salvation, the one who brought it to pass. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies our salvation through regeneration and washing and cleansing and then their ongoing renewal of our minds. And all of this, he says, is done richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died for us. And you just need to look back up to 2, 11 through 14 to see how he says that Jesus gave himself up for us. And so what he, this hymn is bringing to our minds and what Paul is having Titus remind us is that the entire Trinity was at work in saving us. It wasn't something we did. Everything done to us here is done to us passively. In, in the hymn, we aren't doing anything. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We, we do exactly nothing in that process. All those are things done to us. We are saved. We are baptized, have the Holy Spirit poured on us. We are renewed. We are justified. And we become heirs of the hope of eternal life. All that is done to us. And again, this is meant to help us get rid of that self-righteous indignation when we look at the government, when we look at our neighbor doing things that we don't like. Remember, Christian, your salvation is not of you. It was done to you. Now, we'll get in verse 8 to the one thing we did. But he's first reminding them of just how much God did for us, how much God did to us to, to undercut those roots of self-righteousness. Yes, it's right to be grieved. It's right to oppose evil in the world. It's, it's right in the right place and in the right way to speak against it. But never as those who don't do that, those who are the good guys, and then they're the bad guys. Paul's reminding us, we're all the bad guys. Jesus is the good guy. God is the one who saved us. Such were some of us. And then in verse 8, and this is where we closed last week, We do see the one piece of this gospel grace that we are directly involved in. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And that's really where we're picking up this week is verse 8 through verse 11. 
And so the, the last point we saw last week was we must believe. Uh, this is for people who believe. All these things that God has done, he does to those who believe. And the way that we receive the gospel, the way that we become partakers of life, the way that we receive justification and the renewal of the Holy Spirit is through faith. So this morning then, picking up from where we left off last week, we're going to look at treasuring truth, peace, and unity. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. We're going to see it in two points. We have to do a recap because, remember, we, we stopped right in the middle of this passage last week. So to pick back up, we've got to remember where we are. All of this being brought in now as he transitions through verse 8 and 9 into more talk about false teaching to give impetus and motivation and power to obey the commands up in verse 1 and 2. See, if you really like what is said in verse 4 through 7 like I do, I mean, I just glory in the truths of verse 4 to 7. Understand that Paul puts them there so that we can obey verses 1 and 2. That's, that's the ordering. That's the arrangement. He reminds us of those wonderful truths precisely so we can submit and obey to the government, precisely so we can love our neighbor and be kind and gentle and show courtesy to the world. That's why he brings out this hymn. And so remembering truth and bearing good fruit, verse 8. And this is sort of the, the bookend of this section. We remember seeing at the beginning of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then at the end of chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Beginning of chapter 3, remind them. And now again, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. There's, do you see the emphasis here in this section on Christian conduct on the teaching ministry of Titus and the relationship of teaching truth and living truth? There's, there's a connection there. You, you, one without the other is useless. To try to go and do good without having your conscience informed, without knowing truth, there's all sorts of people meaning to do well who do terribly. And truth that doesn't produce fruit is is terrible as well. And so there needs to be a strong teaching ministry at Crete. But the whole point of that teaching ministry, as we've seen, is that people be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we need to remember the truth and bear good fruit. And I just want to make a couple observations here. The first, truth must be taught and retaught. Truth must be taught and retaught. We get that back even in verse 1. Remind them. We talked last week about how these things, obedience to the government, kindness to your neighbor, this, this isn't new teaching. For those of you who were here when we went through Romans, it was very clear in Romans 13, our, our responsibility to the government. This, this is no new teaching. And yet sometimes I think we can trick ourselves into thinking that just because we know something, we don't need to hear it again. But, but if you read through the New Testament, and especially Paul's letters, he's repeating himself all the time. If you've read through Deuteronomy, if you were part of the small group last week, Moses repeats himself a lot. And, and we need to remember truth. Truth needs to be taught, and it needs to get retaught, and it gets need to get retaught again. There's a number of reasons for that. The, the first is, we're not as smart as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. And we forget not only that, but we have hearts that, that lie to us all the time. We have hearts that tell us lies subtly. 
You deserve that. It's okay. You, you better not let yourself get treated that way. You gotta, whatever it is, our hearts just lie to us, and we need truth to combat those lies. And so truth needs to be taught and retaught. We speak truth to each other. Most of the time in, in giving encouragement and counsel to others, I'm rarely teaching them new things. It's usually reminding someone of something they know. And most of the ministry people have in my life is reminding me of things that I already know. This is one of the reasons why we put such a prominent place in the teaching ministry in this church, in our service, because we understand that truth needs to be taught and retaught and retaught and retaught. And it needs to be memorized. The, the implication of this trustworthy statement is these are things that many Christians were memorizing. Many of the Psalms are written in an acrostic fashion, the sole point to facilitate memorization. In fact, the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is one big acrostic poem to aid in memorization. Because truth needs to be taught and retaught and, and memorized. It needs to be quickly on hand so that when our hearts speak lies to us, when the world speaks lies to us, we have truth to respond with quickly. You know, an illustration I can think of is sort of tending a garden. I don't know how many of you this summer tended gardens, but with the dryness that we had, if you have a garden, it's not simply enough to go out you know, dig some holes, plant your seeds, cover it up, and you'd be done with it. You see, if, if, if truth just needs to be taught once, and once we heard it once, we were good, then that would be sort of what that's like. The seed gets planted, there you go. But if, especially in a summer like this, what do you need to do? You need to go out and water it. You need to go out and water it again. You need to go out and water it some more. My wife was tending to some uh, tomato plants this summer. She yielded a great yield, but she was constantly going out and watering those things. See, if you're going to get to the point where fruit is being born, which is where we're headed, there needs to be a constant tending to. It's not good enough to teach something once and be done with it. Truth needs to be taught and retaught, and it needs to be taught with authority. Notice how Paul says he wants them to insist on these things. And again, this is all building up the teaching ministries in the church. You know, when my wife goes out to uh, water the plants, she's not just sort of, would any of you plants like some water? She's just pouring water on them. And if they're weeds, she's pulling them out. That's, that's how you tend to a garden. And she's got to water and rewater and water and rewater. And only after that process and time goes by does fruit get born. For her birthday, she got a canner, and she's been canning tomatoes like mad. In fact, if any of you want me, you just, you just talk to my wife. She'll hook you up. Because the fruit of that labor was a harvest of useful, beautiful tomatoes. But only because there's a constant tending. And if we're to get to the point where God's people are careful to devote themselves to good works, then these truths need to be taught and retaught with authority for us to bear them out in our lives. You know, sometimes you'll talk to someone and they'll say, yes, yes, I know that. Well, okay, great, you need to hear it again, and so do I. Whatever made us think that just because we know something, we don't need to hear it again. But not only must truth be taught and retaught, truth must be received and believed. Again, if the, if the soil does not accept the rain and the seed, it's not going to bear fruit. You can, you can teach and minister the word and speak with authority, but it needs to be believed. That's the audience Paul has in mind here. 
This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You've got to receive it by faith. In fact, describing the failure of the Jews in the wilderness, listen to this word from Hebrews 4. Why did they perish? Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So there was a word that came at Sinai. There was a teaching, authoritative teaching, and if you read Deuteronomy, repetitive teaching, ministry of Moses. And yet, he says, the good news came to them just as to us, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See, all the teaching ministry in the world isn't going to help if the people being taught are hard-hearted and rejecting the truth. Truth needs to be received and believed. And, and we get that. We get that. You can, you can preach the gospel all day long to someone, but until they reach out by faith, it does them no good. And you can speak truth to someone and try to give them helpful counsel and, and help them work through the issues of life, but until it's received and responded by faith, it, it likewise does no good. Which brings us to point C. Truth must be submitted to. Truth must be submitted to. We've got to be willing to place ourselves under the authority of truth. We've, we've got to be willing to let truth rule our thoughts and our conduct. This sort of is the flip side of believing. If you believe something's true, then you're going to order your life around it. If you believe something is true, then it's going to countermand all disagreement. You've got to submit to truth. We saw that back in chapter 2 with the school of the gospel, verse 11 of chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodlessness. The gospel is training us, but that's, again, only going to work if we submit ourselves to it. And here in chapter 3, Paul wants these gospel truths that we just saw in verses 4 to 7 taught, but there's an implication here. The implication is, if you've been renewed, and if you've been forgiven, and if you've been given a renewed mind by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then you are able now to obey. You see, before as an unbeliever, I had an uninformed conscience, and I had a dead heart, and a and darkened spirit. My understanding was clouded. We, we saw in verse 3 what described us. How could somebody in verse 3 possibly bear the fruit that Paul wants the, the Cretan church to bear? It's always a bad idea to expect Canaanites to do anything other than be Canaanites. We've got to remember that sometimes when you read the newspaper. You know, you can say, dear, the Canaanites are at it again, but dead people do dead things. Unbelievers live on unbelief. But the point here is that's not who we are. And notice what's been done to us. He says that... Verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regenerations. We'll pause there. And that's the picture of God giving life and renewal, being born again, of going from having blind eyes to seeing eyes, deaf ears to hearing ears, hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, or being born again or from above. See, that's, that's a pretty significant change. And not only that, 
but the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the ongoing renewal that not only did God do an act once in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's, it's not simply that God did a powerful work in your life in the past. He did. But there's a powerful ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit to renew our minds so that we can approve the things that God has, has given us. We can receive them by faith, that we can believe them, we can understand them and act on them. And not only that, he says, that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, that, that we have now been told that we're going to inherit the universe, we're going to inherit everything, because God owns everything, and if we're God's heir, then we stand to inherit everything. And so we've got every reason why we should be able to and willing to obey. Because whatever you may lose in this life, you're going to inherit everything. It's okay. And whereas you once were, verse 3, you once were foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, you're not anymore. You've been set free from the slavery of sin. You've been set free from that power. You've been given wisdom and understanding. And all of that is being taught, he says, so that those who have believed in God will be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's where that's headed. Because those things are true of us, and I, and I hope and trust they're true of us, that we are the people who have received Christ by faith, that we are the people who have believed on him and been justified and been washed and been renewed and become heirs, then if that's all true, we need to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. We need to submit ourselves to that truth. And you'll remember that good works are really the big theme in Titus of what he wants the church doing. This is why Jesus died, after all. Look back again at chapter 2, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Now, why did he do that? To redeem us from all lawlessness. I'm guessing most of us get that. that he died so that we could be forgiven. He died so we could be redeemed and ransomed from our sin. But it doesn't stop there. To redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There it is. Zealous for good works. Go back to chapter 1. This theme of good works is throughout the entire book. Paul's ministry, his apostleship, is coordinated with this. In the opening verse of the letter, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. I'm an apostle so that people will come to faith, and I'm an apostle so that those who come to faith will learn truth corresponding to godly lives. There it is. Jesus died to redeem us. Jesus died to purify us. That's the two-pronged approach to Paul's ministry. He goes in church-planting missionary style, and he calls people to faith, and then he tends that faith, and he writes letters, and he leaves people behind because he's not just about getting people saved. He's about getting people sanctified. And so back in chapter 3, therefore we now these things are true about us. We need to remind ourselves of these things so that we will be careful to devote ourselves to good works. If you're here today and, and you are a Christian and you're not being very careful to devote yourselves to good works, may I suggest 
before you go out and grit your teeth and try to do that, and I, and I do think you should go out and try to do good works, you probably would serve yourself well by recounting the gospel and these truths, because again, Paul is assuming these truths are the foundation for that fruit, that the constant watering of the seed is what gives the growth. That if we're trying to do these things in our own strength and our own willpower, no wonder you're failing. But if we wake up every day and remind ourselves of the gospel, if we wake up every day and remind ourselves of who we were and who we've become and what's been done to us and what the Lord would have us do, I think we'll live a little differently. I'll have a little more power in our living. So truth must be submitted to so that we'll be careful to devote ourselves to good works. But also, he says, this isn't some harsh, terrible thing. This is good and profitable for us. Sometimes I think we can think, okay, God's going to do this great thing for us. He's going to save us, and then we've got to be willing to put up with some uncomfortable stuff over here. But really, if you balance the equation out, it really, you know, it, it really is heavy on God's side. It, it's a small thing to suffer some for that. But he says doing these things, these things which are not come easily, obeying and submitting to the government, loving your unbelieving neighbor, this is good and profitable. These types of good works, the things listed in chapter 2, that are excellent and profitable. They're valuable. It's not, it's not that God is calling us to do anything other than what is good for us. And again, that's one of the lies of our heart, because our heart tells us, you know, looking out for number one is what's good for me. And I believe that lie really easily. And so I need to be reminded of these things. These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for people. You, you, want, you want something that's good, you want to profit, you want to benefit, believe these things, and then live lives like this. You know, I've never met someone who has regretted obedience, who has regretted faithfulness. I've never met someone who said, oh, if only I hadn't trusted the Lord, if only I hadn't submitted to him. I've met tons of people who said the opposite. I, I, I did my own thing, I went my own way, there's a brief pleasure to sin, but oh now, how much I regret doing that. These things are good for us. You know, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for my yoke is easy. The things he's calling us to do are good for us, and they're excellent. And this word then closes out the teaching section of, of how to live the gospel life, but he's not done until he deals with the other side, the danger what's competing with truth, and that's error. So not only do we have to remember truth and bear good fruit, but verses 9 through 11, keeping the peace and dealing with division. Keeping the peace, dealing with division, he writes, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, if nothing more to do with him, knowing if such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so we're going to look first at the types of things to avoid and then the type of person um, who's caught up in them. Avoiding error and distractions. Avoiding error and distractions. Paul lists four different types of error and distractions. He lists foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. And we're not entirely sure what is meant by that, we get some of an idea from the context of, of 1 Timothy. 
But the bottom line is there are people in Crete, there are people in Ephesus. We saw in 1 Timothy there will be people everywhere who are pushing these things. And the word literally is go out of your way to avoid. Go out of your way to avoid these things. In fact, to use another gardening illustration or plant illustration, um, just last week I was over at Daniel Moore's house and we were out in his garage. He was doing some work and all of a sudden, I hear this, this hubbub as the children are screaming, or the older children are screaming and sort of running our way. And I, as I'm listening, I hear, ah, Sophie, ah, Sophie. Oh, no. And then as I walk over, it becomes clear what's going on as the lead, the lead herald gets closer to us. Sophie's headed towards the poison ivy. Oh, I'm very thankful to those children. Thank you. And what I see, as I look over the hill, is Aiden in full sort of forward guard mode, like NBA style, blocking my daughter, who is intent on getting into this patch of poison ivy. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. And, and what had happened, and I'd seen this happen, is that Daniel had, when he realized the types of plants growing around his property, he had pointed out to his children poison ivy and, and poison oak and described it so that they would be careful to go around it and to avoid it and to stay away from it. They'd learned their lesson well, and, and so as an act of love to my daughter, they were protecting a garden. Stay away. And like two-year-olds do, she, that's the one thing she wants to do now. Um, <laughs> and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's describing what the poison ivy bush looks like, and he's saying, go out of your way to stay away from it. Avoid this type of thing. Don't dive into it. I know some of you here might just enjoy a good argument, might enjoy a good debate. Just stay away from this stuff is what Paul is telling Titus. These foolish controversies, these genealogies, these dissensions and quarrels about the law. Point one here, we see the appeal of novelty. The appeal of novelty. If you turn back to uh, 1 Timothy 1, and it, it's not certain whether the errors in Crete were the same errors in Timothy, but because Paul uses the same type of language and the same type of instruction, I think it's safe to assume there's a fair amount of overlap. And he's more specific in 1 Timothy about the errors he's dealing with. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 3 to 11, both Timothy and Titus start with these charges about false teaching. And Titus, get elders in place to deal with the false teaching. And Timothy, deal with the false teaching. 1 Timothy 1, 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertion. Now, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Jump ahead to chapter 4, and we'll get even more specifics about these errors as we start to learn some of their doctrines. 
Chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so we talked about how when we're in our study in Timothy, you can turn back to, uh, to Titus now, that there is an element of Greek asceticism, this notion that you want to be really spiritual, you want to be really godly, you deny yourself any and all physical pleasure. Um, it's sort of taking what Paul said about making his body his slave and, and overdoing it. It was this notion that the physical world and the physical order was bad, and so pleasure derived from the physical world was bad. Godly people only have spiritual pleasure. They don't enjoy a good cheeseburger. And, and, and Paul puts the kibosh on that. And so that's an element. There's also a Jewish element here. We get that from the genealogies and the arguments about law. And we know from reading through Acts that Paul was harassed by Judaizers. These are people who are saying, yes, yes, it's about Jesus and faith and the law of Moses. Now, who wants to get circumcised? That was their sales pitch. And Paul writes the entire book of Galatians refuting that. And so we don't know to what extent that's going on here, but that's sort of the flavor we pick up from these terms. But in our case, the point is simply this. There will always be a marketplace for new, novel teaching. And, and there's a couple reasons for that. One, it's able to distract us from the simple hard work of obeying the government, loving your neighbor. That's, that, that's not really you know, complicated. It's just hard. So there's always going to be a market for the novel and the new, and you know, here's what you're missing in your spiritual life, and here's this secret key of this Bible code that we've found. Or, I mean, look how much attention the Da Vinci Code got a few years back, and the Gospel of Thomas, and all these other things, and people have to go write you know, a dozen books or so to deal with it, and the church gets confused, and the world joins in, and it just creates exactly this. Quarrels, dissensions, controversy, and so, so moving on to the next point, if you want to know, okay, well, how do I know if I'm dealing with one of these things? How do I know if I'm dealing with one of these things I'm supposed to avoid? Well, a tree is known by its fruit. Notice even in his description of them, he's putting in sort of words that characterize them, not just words about the content, but about the way they're delivered. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Controversy, dissension, quarrels. And, and the way you can tell this type of teaching, how, how, how can I be aware of this stuff and to avoid the stuff that's the, uh, the patch of poison ivy that I'm supposed to go out of my way to stay around? Well, what's it producing? Turn, turn to James chapter 3. He, he makes this point in the spades. The tree is known by its fruit, and teaching is likewise known by its fruit. In James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, James gives a challenge to the would-be teachers in the church at abroad. And what's interesting is James' scale that he gives to measure your qualification and effectiveness as a teacher deals not at all with content. It's not to say that content is unimportant. There are other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, where content is directly addressed. If anyone says Jesus Christ is accursed, 
He is not speaking from the Spirit of God. So the content does matter. James isn't dealing with that. James has got one litmus test he's concerned about. We're going to see it here really clearly, and it's the fruit. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you get that? James is simply saying, look, you think you're a teacher, you think you've got something to teach, let's see your life, let's see your fruit. Oh, is your teaching producing quarrels and conflict? Don't lie, don't deceive yourself. That's not God's wisdom, that's demonic. That's, that's sort of my paraphrase of that passage. The fruit this teaching bears. The tree is known by its fruit. If, if, if this new teaching, if this new book, if this new Da Vinci Code, whatever it is, is just creating arguments and schisms in the church, it's bad. It's bad news. That's exactly the point Paul's making back in Titus. A tree is known by its fruit. And, and the last point I want to make under this heading is I want you to notice the value that he places and how much he wants to guard the peace and unity of the body. And that's really the issue here. And Daniel's beginning to teach Philippians, both with the youth, and we're going through that in our tough men class. And you just see the emphasis on peacefulness, being of one mind and full accord, doing nothing from rivalry or dissension, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. And here, Paul's concern is, is with the root and the fruit. The root is bad teaching. The fruit is division and quarreling and conflict. And truth and the unity of the body around truth is, is priceless and valuable and needs to be maintained. And, and that's our concern. And sometimes we're more concerned with offending someone than we are with maintaining the, the unity of the body. Sometimes we're more willing to, you know, everyone's got a position and opinion and you know, every view's got validity that, we're, that we let error in and divisions creep up in the church. And so Paul will have none of that which now brings us to the person who, who propagates this teaching. Um, literally, in the Greek, a heretic. Only use of the word in the New Testament. And it's a divisive man. A person who creates splits and schisms. This is the opinionated, obstinate person who's bought into these foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels. And he's selling them, and he's pushing them, and he's, he's trying to create the factions. And so we are to warn and reject division makers. We're to warn and reject division makers. Now first, Titus is to warn them. That word for warn could also be instruct or admonish. And I want you to turn over to 2 Timothy, where I think this concept really is unpacked pretty clearly and neatly. There's a lot of overlap in the pastoral epistles, and so this passage in Timothy, I think, helps unpack and even further clarify what's going on in Titus with warning this person. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 23 to 26. Very similar context. 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So in the same context of these controversies and disputes, Paul tells Timothy here, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. He's got to be kind. He's got to be willing to be wronged. And he's got to gently teach and correct his opponents. So that's what Paul, back in Titus 3, is calling on Titus to do. Verse 10 is, for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and twice have nothing more to do with him. So you've got to warn him once and twice. It'd be too easy to simply say, ah, ah that's, that's bad doctrine. You're out of here. But we've got to love people and go talk to them and, and, and treat them as a brother first, hoping that you might win a hearing, that the Lord might grant them repentance, that they might turn from their error of their novel and controversial teaching to the truth. Paul says to do that once and then do that twice. And if after that second time they're still resistant, they're done. They're done. Reject them. Have nothing to do with them. This is, this is a way of talking about church discipline. We see, we see that back in 1 Timothy 1 where he talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander who he has delivered over to Satan that they'll learn not to blaspheme. And so this is a big deal. You wonder how important is this? How important is the purity of the doctrine of the church? How important is, is getting rid of schisms and divisions? Well, it's pretty important. Yeah, you try to save that person. You try to minister to that person. But if they don't listen to you once and twice, get them out of here so that it doesn't spread like gangrene is how Paul speaks of it elsewhere. You, you try to minister to them. You try to save them. You try to bring them to repentance. And if that doesn't work on the, after the second try, they're, they're, they're done. It's two strikes. You're out. That's Paul's approach here. Um, and you think even of the method and the process of church discipline, this is sort of missing a step. I mean, the only sin that gets fast-tracked in church discipline is apparently division-making, especially division-making that's coming from bad teaching. So you finally reject him. And the reason for this is that his fruit, now we're working backwards, the fruit to the root, this fruit of division-making, and, and it's unrepentant. He's not ignorant. He's not deceived. He's not uh, unaware of what he's doing. Rather, he's, he's entrenched and hardened himself to this, is that we know his true inward state, anticipating perhaps that this would be difficult for Titus to do, it's difficult for us to do. He, he reassures him what we can know about such a person, finally in verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And, and this speaks of a warping and a, and a twistedness that occurred some time ago. Sometime in the past, this person got led astray. Sometime in the past, this person was perverted and twisted. And they're just sinning. Literally, they're sinning. And they're self-condemned. And what that means there is that he is self-aware. He's self-aware. You see, when you've got someone who's a believer, and people come and minister truth to them, if the Holy Spirit's inside of them, there should be some response. There should be some acquiescence to, or to use our term in this text, submitting to truth. But when someone comes and teaches the word, when someone comes gently, meekly, and says, hey, I think you got this wrong, and the person gives them the Heisman, tells them to get lost, and then they come back, and they talk to them again, what that person is evidencing is an inward corruption and an inward disposition that isn't a sheep, but it's a wolf. 
This person is, is warped and twisted. They're sinning. And what's worse, he's self-condemned. He, he knows it. He knows it. And so that is how Paul would have Titus guard the truth in the church. Because treasuring truth and peace and unity is, is something that's very important. We are to, on the one hand, treasure the truth, to teach and to reteach it, to memorize it so that we'll live it. On the other hand, we're to avoid and, and walk around error and where we've got error creeping into the church, yeah, we go after people lovingly. But ultimately, if they won't listen, we, we prioritize the purity of the church. And on this note, Paul brings a close to the, the teaching of the book. And on this note, we'll bring a close to this message. And I just hope that the Lord would give us both a zeal for truth and the living of truth and a zeal to be on our guard against error because these things are good and excellent and profitable. Let's close in a word of prayer as I call the worship team up for our final song. Lord God, we want to be people who treasure and prize the truth. We want to be people who love it live it, memorize it, internalize it. But Lord, we also pray that you would guard us from error, that you would guard us from being led astray into controversial faction-making error. Lord, help us to love the truth enough to deal with it when we encounter error and lie. Help us to be bold enough and loving enough to deal with our brothers and sisters who are in error and to gently attempt to correct them, Lord. And help us to love the purity of the whole body more than we love the approval of men, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.